Hello, hello, my beautiful friends. It's Isabella Lumbacura, the world messenger, and I'm inviting you for another epic episode of Legacy Leadership. Today I have someone in uber, uber special, and I just cannot wait for you to hear from this amazing former actor, tremendous speech writer, who was also writing jokes to some really awesome people like Bob Hope and Joan Rivers, also speeches to politicians, to corporates, you name it, and also someone who helped to write the books and help others not only to perfect their speaking, but also through his books, he gave us some plethora of amazing information, how to survive roommate, all the way how to survive being as a primary caregiver to your Asian parents. And of course, and so much in between. So without further ado, I cannot wait to introduce you to Jim Comer. Jim, how are you? I am good. It's hot in Austin. Oh, I bet it is. Today. Woo. <laughs> I'm glad we're indoors and air conditioning is working, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That is fantastic. Obviously, you are here right now in Austin, but your story started in some major metropolitan cities that people around the world absolutely cherish, such as New York and L.A., so do you mind just sharing for our audience, where did you start? Where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in all over the place because my father was in sales. And then we moved to Dallas right before I went to college at Trinity in San Antonio. But after college, I ended up when I was 23, going to New York City to be an actor. And of course, I was one of the 50,000 or more people trying to be actors there for maybe 1,500 jobs. And I arrived in New York, I think I had 200 bucks. And, you know, I didn't know any better. I didn't realize what a hard thing this was going to be. I had that optimism you have at 23. And I can still remember the first job I got in New York was watching commercials. They called it a commercial coordinator for CBS. I made a big $85 a week. Wow. And my, my fantastic apartment was the size of a large car and it was uh, $13 a week. You can imagine what it was like. The bathroom was down the hall and uh, that's where I started in New York and I began studying with one of the best acting teachers in town, David LeGrant, who was wonderful. Uh, The great Broadway star Bernadette Peters was in one of my classes and I loved watching her work but that's where I started and uh, I guess the thing is, I I went to New York really because I wanted to be, I hate to admit this, I wanted to be rich and famous. Somehow I thought (laughs) I needed to be R&F, rich and famous. Don't know why I thought that, but I figured that being an actor was the way to get there. And I had no idea what I was getting into. Wow. The first at that acting class was so terrifying to me because almost everybody in the class had studied acting in high school and in college. Uh, several of them were working on Broadway, including Bernadette, and they were really good. And I was a beginner and I was terrified in that class. I remember the teacher, we would, he would do these exercises called song and dance. And you'd have to get up in front of the class. These were, these were exercises from the famous actor studio. And you'd stand in front of the class and he would ask you to pick a song, any song, and then you were supposed to sing it syllable 
nice syllable, slowly while you're making eye contact with everybody in the class, you're relaxing your body and you're looking ridiculous and you're trying not to show. Well, this scared me to death. And here's what it looked like. I'm gonna, show, I'm gonna give you a quick thing. I'm gonna do a simple song. Happy birthday. Well, I'd start shaking. I would get about three syllables in. I, my whole body would shake. I would sweat going all the way down my face, through my shirt would get wet. It was one of the hardest things I'd ever had to do. It took me six months to realize that it wasn't about doing a performance. He was, how can you do happy birthday with those constrictions to you? It wasn't about looking good. It was about strengthening your will as an actor to do what your director, in this case, your teacher told you to do. It took me a long time to get that. But finally I did and eventually I got comfortable in the class and I was there for almost three years and learned a lot, which I thank God was very helpful to me later in life. What a powerful story and what a powerful career coming and facing the fears or jumping in, you know, with both feet in without even knowing what you're getting yourself into and finding amazing pathway on the journey, uh, which you obviously from fear to greatness and uh, tapped into so quickly. So obviously actor career gave you some opportunities, but also great learning curve and uh, propel you for something new afterwards. So what did you well, do afterwards? Well, one of the most important things I think that happened during those years at, in class and then the six or seven years when I really auditioned to try to be an actor, was you had to face a tremendous amount of rejection. Because with all those thousands and thousands of actors trying for very small numbers of jobs, most of the time you were rejected. And it really built uh, a core of resilience, I think, because there are so many talented actors there. I mean, unbelievable number of talented ones. So you need talent to make it and you need wanting it to make it. Just like entrepreneurs and business people have to have that wanting to be successful in their careers or in their business. And then you gotta have some luck or you gotta know some people. And it's a combination of talent, persistence and resilience and luck those are the three things actually that go together, I think, to make people really succeed. And I learned a lot about that during the day, but what I learned also a lot of all the things you had to do to stay alive in the meantime, because I mean, my best year as an actor, and this is gonna sound so funny, my best year, and this was in the seventies, my best year, I made $3,300. And that, that doesn't sound like much, does it? Well, that put me in the top 10% of the actors in the union for income that year. Wow. Can you imagine that? So in today's, in today's dollars, that would be $18,000. Imagine living in New York today at $18,000. Well, of course you couldn't. And so I should have probably looked at that $3,000 and $3,300, and that was in the top 10%. That would have told a rational person, this might not be the job for you. But of course I wasn't rational because I was trying to be rich and famous. So <laughs> I began doing all sorts of things on the side. I mean, I was a waiter. I was one of the worst waiters in New York. I got fired from numerous restaurants. I drove cabs <laughs> badly. I was pretty good. I was pretty good 
at uh, walking dogs and I was pretty good. I, I learned to be a decent bartender. And I never forget once I went into, I, I had some friends who had this very fancy executive they knew who wanted her apartment painted. And they told her that I was a great house painter. Well, of course I wasn't, I'd never painted a house before. This was, a, I was gonna paint her apartment. <laughs> and so she had me in to interview for, to see if I would be a good apartment painter. And the first question she asked me, she said, Jim, do you spackle? I had never heard the word in my life, but I knew the answer was going to be, should be yes. So I looked her in the eye and said, absolutely, of course I spackle. And then later on, I learned what spackling was and I did spackle, but you just had to do those things to stay alive. And um, mm -hmm. I did. And I also um, started doing some writing on the side. You mentioned writing jokes for Joan Rivers. I was a waiter in the club where she was performing and I found that she would buy jokes from anybody. Anybody that could come up with good jokes that she liked, she'd buy them. I made a big $7 a line. <laughs> I didn't get rich writing for Joan because she wrote most of her stuff herself. But I remember sending her 20 jokes and she bought three, three times seven, $21. But she used one of my jokes <laughs> on the Ed Sullivan show that next Sunday. And I went, that's me, that's my joke. And um, and eventually, I also did a lot of quiz shows. I mean, a lot of unemployed actors in New York would uh, try to get on quiz shows because that way you could maybe make some money. And I was on a bunch of them, uh, including Jeopardy. And I, I came within one question of winning on Jeopardy, just about killed me. I can still remember the whole thing, which question I lost on. But the best, the best show I was on was called the $10,000 Pyramid with Dick Clark. Wow. You, you don't probably know that because you weren't here then, but it was a big show. It ran for like 20 years and you would have, uh, you'd have two celebrities, well-known celebrities, and then two starving people like me. And of course I would have to, I couldn't tell them I was an actor. I said I was a teacher. And um, I, I got on the show. And what happened was that um, they had, that time they had two stars that had very different abilities to play the game. Lucy Arnaz, who was Lucille Ball's daughter, was a terrific game show player. She was on a lot of shows. She was great. And they had a guy named Anson Williams who was in a famous show called Happy Days. He was a terrible, terrible game show. <laughs> if you got Anson as your partner and you lost the game, you were gone. So anybody that got him, big trouble, no chance. And I needed this to pay my rent. And so I was $3,000 in debt, actually. So I'm waiting and waiting. Finally, they call my name. The, the talent coordinator picks me and I'm going up, I'm getting on stage. Am I going to go to him or to her? And he, she points me to Lucy. And I said out loud, oh, thank God I got Lucy. And the talent coordinator turned around to me and she said, don't thank God, honey, thank me. <laughs> yeah, giving me the break of Lucy. And so I went, I, I, were, I did play the game with Lucy and we won. Then I went to this pyramid in the middle and I tried to win there. I didn't win. So that meant the next game, I had to go to Anson. And by this time, I was just shaking. I wanted to win so desperately. So during the commercial break, I got right in his face across our desk. And I said, Anson, you have got 
to speed up. We've got to go faster. I mean, I think I scared the poor man to death. That gives you some idea of the energy I put toward getting him to speak up and go faster. Here's the good news. He did. We won the next game. He was the first game he'd won all day. He was on 10 games. He lost nine and he won with me. And I ended up going to the pyramid seven times and I got like $3,400, which meant that I paid off all my debts and had $400 left over. So I, was, I felt I had won the moon. In times of tremendous velocity and change and transformation, uh, but what a story and what a perseverance and what a, uh, of opportunity to really self-discover. So what, what all of those experiences then brought you to that next step? Because I know after that you jumped into something completely new and different. Yes, what happened was while I was trying to be an actor and to be an actor, somebody else, usually a director or a casting agent had to give you permission to get into the show. You couldn't do it on your own. Yes. But I started doing some writing and nobody had to give me permission to write. And I, one, one night I was on a subway and I saw this, this man, it was a rush hour subway and it was packed. And I saw this small, thin man walk on the subway with a briefcase. He sat down, he opened up his briefcase, he got out drumsticks, shut the briefcase and he began to play the, the briefcase as if it was a drum and he was in the orchestra and he was good. He wasn't asking for money. He just wanted to entertain us and he was very good. And I watched this crowded, unhappy, kind of surly group of people on the subway car. I watched them transform and they began nodding and smiling and you could see them relax. He transformed the entire car. It was like, a, you know, like he was magic. And I was just on it for six, six stops with him. But by the time I got off, everybody in the car was feeling differently. Mm -hmm. And I got home that night and I wrote about this guy. I wrote a, a, a feature piece about what I'd seen and sent it to the New York Times. They had just started what they call the op-ed page, which was people could write articles like that. He had just started a few months earlier and anybody could send it in. So I sent them the article and they published it. I was like amazed because I'm a giant fan of the New York Times then and now. And um, they sent me $150, which was a lot back then. And they published it. And then better than that, the Reader's Digest, big magazine with 12 million circulation, bought it and they published it. And I got $400 from the Reader's Digest from my half. And all of a sudden I thought, whoa, you are a writer. <laughs> I mean, writer. You want to be actor and I, actor. <laughs> I mean, really, the very first thing I'd ever got into the Times and the Reader's Digest. Well, of course, the next 25 things were, were rejected. But nevertheless, I began doing some writing and uh, I began actually started this book that you mentioned. I, at the time, I, I was writing some articles for a small weekly newspaper on the West Side. And they didn't pay much, but they would let me write cover stories and it was good practice. And one day, a, a literary agent, I had done an article about uh, locks, L-O-C-K-S, because New York had a lot of crime and people had like three locks on their door. So I wrote this cover story and I 
it was not my favorite thing because I'm, I'm not very mechanical. So I wrote 1500 words on locks. This literary agent called me up and said, would you like to write a book on locks? I went, no, I couldn't possibly write a book on locks. The only thing I know enough to write a book on is roommates because I had so many of them. And as I said those words, ding, in my mind went, hey, that's a good idea. Had, by then, with college and New York, I'd had 18 roommates. So wow. I, I just started writing. Nobody gave me permission. And I wrote a funny guidebook to roommates called How to Survive a Roommate. And eventually, several years later, um, I, I got an agent and it took her three or four years. We finally got a publisher uh, in New York and they published it. And eventually it led me to being on the Today Show. So it was a, it, all that took about from about 1975 to 1981. It was a six years for that to all happen. But it started all by him, all because he wanted me to write a book on locks and I knew I could. <laughs> but it's amazing how those things lead you to that next thing and next thing. And when you look back, Absolutely. when you examine your paths, what was those pivotal moments that get you again, breaking free and breaking through those fears unknown and putting yourself out there and, and just making magic happen? And another thing that happened around uh, about this time, I, I had a, this very talented friend who was very funny and she and I were very different. She was sort of New Jersey, Italian, Catholic, tough as nails, cynical. I'm Southern, Protestant, optimistic, not tough as nails. And we, we got together and we did a comedy act. We did sketches and monologues and, and I, they were pretty good. And we, we actually won a talent contest and got on at the Improv, which is the number one comedy club in New York. We want to, of course, we got on at like three in the morning because they already had all these big stars. But, you know, we got on and we got a manager, which was, that was the most important thing. We got this professional manager. And the summer of 1975, he sent our material, our monologues and our sketches to Lorne Michaels, the famous producer who was that summer putting together the show that would become Saturday Night Live in the fall. Wow. And Lauren loved our stuff. And he called us in to 30 Rock, NBC, Rockefeller Center, and told us, standing right in front of him, he said, I really like this. And I said, would you like us to write some more? We can do that. He said, no, no, I've seen enough. I want you to be writers on the show. And we went, wow. I know. We, of course, didn't know it was going to be Saturday Night Live. All we knew was it was going to be a TV show. And he just told us he wanted us to be writers. And he said, this was in July. And he said, next month, August, we're going to get the writers together and I'll give you a call and let you know when to come in. And we said, great. And we were so excited that we actually took a cab home instead of the subway, which was a big deal. That was a splurge for me. And so this was in July and it became August and we waited and we waited and we didn't get a call. So we had our manager call him, no response. We called, manager called again, we called again. We never heard from him again. Aww. I thought, especially when the show premiered in, in October and it was this giant cultural phenomenon hit, uh, I thought I was gonna die. I mean, I really did, I, I was physically ill because you know, in my mind, we'd come so close. But no, as I look back on it, I know what happened. 
the word got out that this guy, Lauren Michaels, is going to have a comedy show for 90 minutes live every week. And every comedy writer in the East Coast and in California sent him their resume, had their managers call, and he got flooded, I'm sure. And um, with people who had long resumes as, as TV writers, which we didn't have, I'm sure he just, you know, chose a, a group of experienced writers. But I didn't know that at the time. I thought my, ah, I thought my life had ended. And I took a job, you're not gonna believe this. I was so unhappy, I thought I'm getting away from all this. I took a job writing instructional materials for the Girl Scouts. <laughs> uh, how horrible that was. And they didn't have anything for me to do. What but, improvement from the locks? <laughs> from Saturday Night Live to the Girl Scouts, little change. And um, I was there about eight or nine months. And then I gave acting one more chance for about a year and a half. And then finally, I'd done a summer stock job down in South Carolina. And as the, as the, on the day after our last performance, I'd had a great time in South Carolina. I'd stayed with the producers. They had, they had a beautiful yard with a hammock and I had use of a car. I hadn't driven a car in years in New York. I mean, I loved being in kind of real life instead of in a, a dark apartment with bars on the, on the windows. And I'm telling you, when I got back on the plane to head back to New York, and unemployment, all of a sudden, I had this thing inside me that said, it's over, it mm. is over. You're going to look for a real job. And that happened just like, I mean, it happened almost as I was sitting down in my, in my seat on the plane, because I was so unhappy, I didn't want to go back to New York. And when I got there, I, I called my entire address book, 300 people, and told everybody in my address, I'm serious. Acting is over. I'm looking for a real job. I'd like to do something with writing. Just want you to know. And nobody believed me. They <laughs> don't believe actors when they tell them that they're going to quit. Nobody. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Because I quit a couple of times before. This time I really meant it. Though. Nobody, nobody thought. But I talked to one woman I had worked with in a jobs training program when I was studying acting. She was in human resources at Avon Products World Headquarters. And she said, Jim, if, and these were her exact words, by some miracle, I get you an interview and you get a job, you have to stay at least six months or I'll be embarrassed. See, she didn't believe I would quit either. But, <laughs> well, about six weeks later, she got a memo that said, uh, looking a sales meeting department, looking for wacky idea person. For some reason, she thought of me and she got me an interview for this physician writing sales meeting. And I had never had a corporate job before. And I, I really didn't know how to behave in a corporate manager. So, but anyway, so for my big interview, I wore, I think my only suit at the time, which was a blue velvet Pierre Cardin number. Not exactly right for a corporate interview, but I didn't even know it. The good news was they wanted a wacky idea person. So they didn't care about the suits. I brought all the stuff I'd written and the person interviewing me said, can I keep that and read it? And I said, sure. I didn't even have a briefcase. I just kind of plopped it on the desk. And I left and about 10 days later, she called and offered me the job, which was wow. a miracle for me. I went from like very little money 
to $28,000 a year back when that meant a lot. That was like 90 or 100,000 today. And it totally changed my life. Finally, I had a, a credit card. <laughs> I had no credit card. I had no credit, you know, and uh, that changed everything because after a couple of years of writing for the, my job was to write the meetings that would go to the 3000 district managers all across America who each month put on a meeting for the 500,000 Avon ladies. And I wrote the script for them. And these, one, these pe women, these district managers were like my mother times 3,000. They were salt <laughs> of the earth, American. I knew what made them tick. So I had a great time writing their meetings. And finally, one day they asked me to write a speech for the CEO of the company because he was going to do a big event honoring the district managers. It was going to be streamed all over the country. It's a big deal. It's going to be a banquet at the Plaza Hotel. They wanted me to write the speech. Well, I, I'd never written a speech before, so I gave it my shot and I made it warm and humorous and uh, very not corporate. And everybody liked the speech. And then one day they said, well, like God, they said, we want you to come here, the CEO. He's going to give it to about 30 people here at home office just for practice. I said, oh, great. I can't wait. So I went to hear him and he was terrible, unbelievably bad, terrible speaker. And I'm going, oh my God, he is going to ruin my speech. And so I can't believe I did this. <laughs> that I cannot happen. I, I, I barely knew this man. I mean, I went up to him after this little practice thing and I, God gave me the right words to say, I said, Mr. Cheney, I think you can be, and here are the key words, I think you can be even better if we could rehearse a few times. Would you like to rehearse? And he had this long pause and he said, no one has ever asked me to rehearse before. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I can tell that. And then he said, okay, <laughs> I think it's a good idea. And I had three rehearsals with him and I used everything that I had learned in that acting class. I used all those lessons I'd learned and he got better. I mean, he got a lot better. I didn't say he was great, but he was, whoa, so much better than he was before. And when he gave the speech that night, everybody liked it. He got fabulous feedback, which meant that I got good feedback. And overnight, I was a speechwriter and a speech coach. And in my life changed. Wow. And I'm still doing it. So. Wow, what a story. And also it you happened had just many... exactly. I didn't, I didn't change one word. That's exactly the way it happened. Amazing, Jim. And thank you so much for sharing that. And obviously, you still have it. You are still helping so many people uh, to not only be clear about their ideas, but also how to deliver and, and, and content and delivery and all those elements, as you mentioned. And, and I'm actually experiencing some of that myself firsthand, and I'm beyond grateful. And uh, what I just wanted to say, that is priceless and obviously timeless skill sets to have. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that the, the key to being a good speaker is you've got to have good content. I mean, the speech that you're giving has to be good, has to be clear and understandable, and it has to sound like you. You can't write, you can't write a speech that's written by, for somebody who doesn't have your personality. It has to sound like you in the way it's written. And 
if you have a, and you need some stories in it and examples. So those can be, if you have really good content and you've worked on it and it sounds like you, and then you work, once you've got the content, then you work on delivery so that not only does it sound like you, you deliver it the way you really speak when you're talking to your friends and family and people who would like and admire you and let your real individuality come out because that is the key to being a good speaker. Individuality, because it leads to likability and likability leads you to connect to the audience. So many people, well, let's just say that most speakers are terrified of the F word. Not that one, the other F word. Fear. Fear. I thought failure. Fear is just gigantic. You know, we've all heard, I think most people have heard the, the Gallup poll thing. More people are afraid of dying than they are of speaking in public. I mean, that's just, you know, they'd rather, they'd rather die than have to speak. And, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. It just doesn't have to be that way. So what I try to do is to get rid of the fear and help people learn some basic things that they can do so that they can end up speaking in public the way they do in real life when they're at their best. Mm. If they do that, they can be, they can be good speakers. That is fantastic advice. And I cannot wait for our audience that is watching and listening here on the Legacy Leaders Show to really take that to the heart and start practicing, start figuring out and get help where they need because all of us do need that. No matter how many years we're being involved in an industry, it's just always something new to learn. And we never know how we're received on the other side. Unless we create opportunity to get that feedback. Unless we get someone like yourself with expertise to really and, and the, thing, out. the thing about speaking is, you know, speaking cannot be learned by reading a book. It's yes. you can't learn how to speak or do any kind of athletic activity by reading. If you want to be a, a good swimmer, got to get into the pool over and over and over again. And if you want to be a good speaker, you've got to get into the audience. You have to get into speaking over and over and over, and then getting feedback each time from someone you know and trust. That's why Toastmasters is a great organization because it allows people to have small meeting groups, they give speeches, they get feedback and people get better. And that's what I do. I, I'm the person that listens and says what you're doing right. Here's what you're doing really right, I love it. And here's where, just like I said before, you can be even better. Yes. And if you keep doing that and building on your successes in a year of speaking regularly, you are going to make gigantic progress. And you will, and, and if in a couple of years, even somebody who's not good at all right now can be a very strong speaker. That is excellent advice. And I love how these years of your experience accumulated for something. Uh, and, and how they put you also on a trajectory to diversify uh, speaking skill, acting skill, but also caring for others in such a tremendous compassionate way. You also created something phenomenal, this, your, your uh, most recent book, uh, where you were also published around providing care to aging parents. Reason why I would like to also touch a little bit on that, because 
we can use those skill sets in so many different ways, right? You were able to plug that in in such a marvelous way. Right. So do you mind sharing with our audience how all of this unfolded and how did you leverage and utilize all those great skills to make magic happen for your parents? Well, I was, you know, after I had the success at Avon, ultimately I went to California and I was coaching executives there and some politicians and really enjoying doing that. I had, I, I, I was, I had a good career going. I had a house on a hill. I had lots of friends, great church, and my life was going well. And then one morning, 1996, 7 a.m., I get a phone call from my parents' next door neighbor in Dallas. And in 30 years of living next door, she had never called me. And she said, Jim, and I, as soon as she said her name, I went, oh my goodness, to myself, I thought, oh, this isn't gonna be good. And sure enough, it wasn't. She said that my father was walking around in circles in the front yard and he looked like he was in a daze. She said, Jim, I think he's having a stroke. And she was right. I called home immediately. I got my mother, but my dad wouldn't come to the phone. I could hear him kind of yelling in the background. He wouldn't come to the phone. And in that moment, I knew that the next door neighbor was right. And within hours, I was on a plane from LA to Dallas where they lived and um, my whole world turned upside down. I mean, instantly, because I was an only child. I had a brother who had died 30 years earlier in a car accident. So I'd been the only child for, for 30 years and there wasn't anybody else to depend on. My parents were in their mid eighties. They were living in Dallas but all of our relatives were 200 miles south in the Austin area. And so when I got there to Dallas that night and my father was in intensive care, oh, and you'll love it. You know how the neighbors got into the hospital? They told him he was going for Mexican food. <laughs> my father never turned down Mexican food, not even in the middle of a stroke. <laughs> and so he gets to the hospital. By the time I got there, he couldn't walk or talk, had no control of his bodily functions, was on a catheter. And the doctors told me he only had one week in intensive care. I had to get him into a rehab center for strokes. And the problem was, because we had no relatives in Dallas, I had to get him down where we had family. I had to get him down to Austin. So I went down two days later, flew down to Austin in a rainstorm. And I, I went from one rehab center to, I went to Fargo in one afternoon and they all looked the same to me. And finally at St. David's, a nurse smiled at me. Wow. I needed a smile really bad that week. And I chose St. David's for this logical reason of a smile. And they said they would bring him down the next, uh, the next Monday in an ambulance. Then I flew back to Dallas. And of course I had to deal with my mother who had early dementia mm. and she couldn't live alone. Dad had been taking care of her, but she didn't know that. And she said, Jim, it's okay for dad to go to Austin, but I am staying right here in my house. I'm not going anywhere. Well, there you go. One of the main things I learned about being a caregiver in those very first, this was all in the first week now, I learned the power of improvisation. I did not know what to do about getting mother to Dallas where she had to go. 
And I had cousins who said that she could come stay with them, but I had to physically get her there. So as the week went on, I came up with an idea. I bet everything on this idea. I called, yeah, <laughs> I guess this idea called, uh, yeah, it's kind of a, just betting the farm on something you hope will work. So on Sunday night, uh, I packed for my mother, put all of her stuff in the car. And on Monday morning, I walked into the breakfast room where she was sitting, having her breakfast and her coffee and reading the paper. And I got right down in front of her. I said, mom, would you like to go get some ice cream? My mother loves ice cream. Even at 8.30 on a Monday morning, she smiled, put down the paper, got right up from the chair, took my arm, walked through the house, walked out the front door, into the car, and we drove away from her home of 34 years. Wow. And she never saw it again. Wow. I want you to think I'm a bad guy. First Dairy Queen we came to, stopped the car, got her this gooey chocolate sundae, and then I headed for the freeway to Austin. Wow. And I kept waiting for her to say something. And she never did. She just commented on the colors of passing cars. Finally, I got her to my cousins and I let her go, gave her a big kiss and flew back to Los Angeles where I'd been gone for 11 days. Wow. That's the kind of thing that will happen to you as a caregiver, the unexpected, and you're going to have to deal with it the best you can. And sometimes the improvisations will work and sometimes they won't and you'll have to try something else. But that was just the very first 10 days. And I had 14, 14 years of caregiving with my parents. Sorry. Yes. A long time. Uh, about six months. I spent the first six months trying to go back and forth from LA. And I realized I couldn't do what I had to do from a thousand miles. And so I quit my job, sold almost everything, took a U-Haul, moved to Austin. And um, then I really began to understand what it meant to deal with someone with early Alzheimer's. Because mm. my mother, she just wasn't the same person. You know, when I would come to visit her for you know four or five days, she could put on a good front. My father would try to help her. And she looked like she was doing better than she was. But when I got, when I got to Texas and I was there on a daily basis, I could see the enormous changes. And um, one time I remember, this is, a less, this is the most important thing I can tell you about caregiving. She, she asked me if we could go see her sister who lived in Smithville, which is a town of 3,000, about 42 miles from Austin. And I said, mom, we can't go see Estelle. She's in heaven. Mm. That was a rookie caregiver mistake. I should have never said that because she, the minute I said that, she started crying, bawling, tears down her face, shoulders shaking. She must have cried for 10 minutes. It was brand new news to her, even though her sister had been dead for eight years. And I realized that I had made a big mistake, but all I'd done was tell the truth. So the next day, I went to an Alzheimer's specialist. I kind of got an emergency appointment. <laughs> and I went in and said, I don't think I can do this. And she looked at me and she said, honey, from what I hear, you don't have much choice. And of course, she was right. 
Yeah. And I said, well, what do I do? And then she gave me the best advice I ever got on caregiving. She said, quit trying to drag your mother into your world. Mm. She can't go there anymore. Instead, you must go into her world. Go into her world. Wow. I got it the second she said it. I went, oh, okay, I can do that. And I started doing it that day. And I did it for the next 14 years. And over those wow. 14 years, of course, her condition changed. I mean, she had less and less cognitive ability as the years went on. And I matched her where she was. I mean, those first three or four years, she still had a great sense of humor, lots of personality. It was a lot of fun, but gradually it got you know worse and worse and worse. And I matched her. And the other thing that's so important, I didn't try to make her wrong. I didn't try to correct her. Because haven't you seen people who are out with elderly parents and especially those who have dementia or Alzheimer's and they're saying something like, mama, I just told you that. I told you that three times, mama. How come you don't remember? I've seen that over and over stuff like that. If, if they could remember, they would remember. It's not their fault, it's a disease. You wouldn't fuss at somebody for having cancer, but I've seen over and over the desperation and the upset on caregivers' faces. My deal was when faced with the choice between them being right, which isn't really important at all, and you being kind, yes. go for kindness. Go for kindness every time. You're not gonna go wrong with that. I can remember the day, this is maybe eight, uh, maybe eight years into the caregiver. I don't know, eight or nine years in. I showed up at the nursing home and suddenly when I showed up, there was a blank expression on my mother's face. She didn't know who I was. Mm -hmm. I knew that day was coming. I just didn't know what day it would be. And so instead of taking it personally or getting upset, I just smiled, reached out my hand and said, Hello, Jim Comer, your firstborn son. Good to meet you. And I gave her a big hug. And she kind of looked back and then started smiling. This was a new person for her to know. And that's what we had to do from them on. I would introduce myself and still do the same kind of thing I would have done anyway. And wow. that went to the end. The last three or four years of her life, she had almost no verbal skills at all. But that didn't stop me from being a loving son and taking her for rides and getting her ice cream and uh, singing to her and taking her out in the garden, all the things she liked. I could still do her. I, I could do those things. I just couldn't give her conversation. Mm -hmm. So to me, caregiving, you know, I, went, I spent all that time wanting to be rich and famous in New York. You heard me say it. I mean, all the stuff I did, books and Today Show and Saturday Night Live and all that stuff most important thing I ever did in my life, not even a close second, was to take care of my parents. It was the best thing I did. And I, I, I feel so good about it. And you know, you don't have to be great. You, you, you might think, oh, I couldn't do that. Oh, yes, you could. The most important thing it is, if you have this happening in your life, is to show up. Just show up. Be there for them. And, and you'll learn. You'll learn how to do what you need to do.
That is such a powerful share. And I feel like everything you told us today on this Legacy Leader Show, everything you started with, it prepared you for that moment so that you can be that amazing, not only son, but amazing skills, give, uh, uh, take care, amazing, sorry. So that you can be so amazing and taking care of your beautiful parents and also providing opportunities for others to do the same. And as you said, improvising, adjusting, acting, performing, entertaining, and also obviously um, sharing the wisdom to our audience and through your books and through your knowledge. Um, yeah, I think that one of the, the great gifts was to be able about, about five years into this, I began to think, you know, I need to write about this. And so in the early 2000s, I wrote a book, which uh, I did two versions of it, self-published version, and then I added more to it and did a, got a book that was nationally published called When Roles Reverse. And that's exactly what it was, you know, that's what happened to me, my roles flipped. And I used in this my story and a lot of humor and how-tos and then interviews with experts. And the book got a national publisher and it did well and it's still selling. And then I began to do a keynote speech called How to Survive Caregiving with Sanity and a Sense of Humor. And I've spoken, I think, in 26 states and, and Canada. And I just love sharing my story with other people so that they can realize that it's not going to be the end of the world to be a caregiver. They can do it. And then they can do it and, and, and feel good about what they're doing. And I try to give them how-tos based on what I learned along the way. That is extraordinary as we're having so much of aging population, as we're looking also for great speakers, entertainers, and people that have phenomenal knowledge, as you said, that is the number one fear factor to show up on the stage and share the knowledge in front of a larger audience. And you're doing this flawlessly, not only with the content and opportunities for them to be the best version of themselves, but also phenomenal experiences and niches. So with that in mind, how are you helping people today? Uh, what are some of those things that you do? I mean, you're leveraging virtual, virtual environments from Zoom and technology. <laughs> I'm to doing it right person. now. Instead of looking down at my screen at you, which is here, I am looking at my camera lens, which is on top of my monitor. And I'm trying to stay with the camera lens because that's where we make eye contact. And if I'm going this, looking down here, I'm no longer making the eye contact, but here I am. And I got to tell you, as long as I've been speaking and teaching, this is still hard to do. Because as speakers, whether we're in person or on Zoom, it is so important to make eye contact. You know, mm -hmm. it's last weekend, I did a presentation skills workshop for 14 surveyors who do classes on, uh, on the surveying skills and they speak all year long. And so I was helping them in person on how to be better presenters. And they made real progress during the day. They did several exercises that were videotaped. And of course, we were in person, which was great because we had that instant feedback and we could see each other's body language and, 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 and uh, we had that magic energy exchange that happens in the room when you're there together. But I'm gonna be coaching some executives next week from a, from a large nonprofit from Atlanta and it's gonna be on Zoom. And I'm afraid they're gonna have those tiny little boxes, but I'm hoping they're gonna have bigger boxes. I don't know how much of their faces are even gonna be seen by their, by their audience. So it's gonna to have to be a real adjustment in what I suggest to them. So right now, those of us who are trying to help speakers, we gotta help them in person 
and on Zoom. And on Zoom, I think that A, your background has got to look professional. You've got to dress professionally. You got to make the eye contact. You don't want to have anything jangly on your body to make, you know, and you, you have to deal with all sorts of technology problems. Like, you know, ours went out. We went out for about 20 seconds. Who knows why? When I was yelling at Anson Williams about the quiz show. <laughs> I think that did it, me yelling. Because that's what I, what happened to the screen is what happened to Anson. He got scared into being fast. Anyway, but, you know, those are things that are going to happen on Zoom. There will be technical problems sometimes. And you just have to be calm and deal with them. And the most important thing is trying to bring all the stuff that you'd bring in real life your smile is so important because when you're really focused on just this, this much of the body, my, you're seeing my face, you're seeing my smile, but, and hopefully you're seeing some eye contact, but the voice, what you do with your voice and your, your, the, your tone of voice and your enthusiasm and energy, that really makes a big difference on Zoom because we're not seeing your full body. And we're not seeing you move a lot because, you know, moving in Zoom is not so easy. I mean, if I move, I'm gone, you know, so you're stuck with me right here. Whereas in real life, I move all over the stage in real life. I can't do that on Zoom and I can move my hands. I've got to get my hands in the right place where they can be seen by the camera. So there's all sorts of things you have to learn to transfer what you would do in real life. I shouldn't say real life in person, that's a better way of putting it, in person to in Zoom. And you can be effective in both ways. It's, in fact, last year, I did three keynote speeches on my caregiving to groups that I'd spoken to in person earlier. They wanted me to come back and talk to their caregivers who are now stuck at home and they couldn't see their loved ones. They wanted me to talk to them over Zoom. So I had to take an hour speech. I was doing it standing up. It's a speech that had lots of laughter in it. And of course, I wasn't hearing any laughter. I wasn't hearing that audience response. I just had to, pre I knew where it's supposed to be. So if there was a laugh, I might pause a little bit because I knew that's where it was supposed to be, even though I couldn't hear it. And I wasn't sure how the speech had gone, but the clients told me that it went well. So I, I just had to believe them. But you don't have that feedback, that instant feedback. And there's not much you can do about that. Mm. That is fantastic lesson also for so many of us that still conduct in businesses and meetings and, 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 and business interaction and conversation virtually, because as we know, not everybody's back in office, a little alone for professional career and speaking. So that is tremendous. But uh, obviously you did so many wonderful things in your career and now you're available obviously to help others. What is the best way for everybody curious, intrigued and desiring to get in touch with you? How they can uh, do that? Well, I'll give you three ways. There's my website, which is real easy. Comer, C-O-M-E-R, communications with an S, dot com. That's comercommunications.com. It's my website. Uh, and then uh, you, I, my email is jim at comercommunications.com. And those are the two best ways to get in touch with me. Uh, and as I'm available for one-on-one -on -one coaching, which is easy to do on Zoom or presentation skills workshops or to do either of my community. I have a keynote on communication skills, which is, contains some of what we talked about today. It's very interactive. 
and I get the audience up on their feet and doing improvs at the end. And we have a lot of fun and they learn some stuff they can use immediately. And then I do my caregiving keynote, which is how to survive caregiving with sanity and a sense of humor. And I love to do that for groups uh, um, all, over the, all over the country. That is amazing. And uh, with that in mind, I also wanted to ask you, Jim, as, as we're coming uh, towards the end of, of this time around, we'll definitely bring you back because I know it's way more stories there and more amazing, valuable lessons for others to learn from you. So we'll definitely get you back on the Legacy Leader Show again. But could you please share something in closing for everyone? As you just said, you might think you need to be actor, but then you find out actually you need to be speech writer or need to be somebody else. What would you recommend as people are still trying to figure out who they are, what they're about, a piece of advice and some words of wisdom so they can take action right away? Well, first of all, you don't have to know what you are going to be at any certain age because you can keep learning and growing and evolving. And especially in today's world where people don't get a job and keep it for you know, 20, 30, 40 years, that's not the way anymore. So people are going to have different kinds of jobs and they're going to make changes in their career. So I think now more than ever, you have the opportunity to explore different facets of your skills and your, and your passions and your desires. And I think that's a good thing. Now I fell into my career in my mid thirties. I had no idea I would be a speech writer and a speech. I never, I didn't think that was going to happen but it turned out to be a good fit for me. The truth is I wasn't really the best actor. I'm better at being myself with attitude, with humor, rather than trying to portray another person. I know that now, I didn't know it back then, but over time I realized that. And when I began speaking, I went, oh yes, this is the kind of performing I always wanted to do. I didn't know that in my twenties. But I know it now and it, it, it just evolved. So I would say take some of the pressure off of yourself and know that you, if you keep growing and changing and, and searching, you're going to find the right thing for you. And then, as I said, my, my time spent with my parents turned out to be the most important thing. And you could have never convinced me in my 20s or 30s that that would have been. I was too selfish. I really was. I mean, I think the greatest gift for me of uh, caregiving was that it allowed me to be less selfish and more giving and wow. that's a great gift and it brought in a spiritual part to my life that had been greatly missing and that has been a, a gift beyond description but no one could have convinced the younger me of that but thank god when the time came i was able to to do what i needed to do and uh, I, I, I feel grateful for that opportunity. So I'm saying to you, if you're not where you want to be yet, keep searching, keep being open, and you might not know yet what you're going to do. Doesn't matter. You're going to get there eventually. Wow, that is gold. That is beautiful words of wisdom and advice uh, for everybody. Again, soul searching, trying to figure it out takes time and Jim is perfect example and if you let it uh, unfold and try different things you are going to find that right um, 
process for you, but also right outcome and right career path. And lastly, I just cannot wait to ask you this last uh -oh. question. Uh -oh. <laughs> you I can't, can't imagine what's coming here. You just cannot escape this one, which is with everything you've been doing, with everything you already know, with everything you shared on today's show, what would you like your legacy to be? What, because you're obviously living and leading with that. And I'm curious, what would you like to leave? Well, I'm working on a memoir right now, and I've, I'm deep into it. I'm so embarrassed to say I've, didn't, I've got over 200,000 words, and I'm not even close to the end of the first draft, which means that about 80% of it's going to be cut. But I'm hoping that this book that I'm working on, I'm hoping, A, that I finish it in the next couple of years, and I think I will, and then I'm hoping that it will be something that people can read and find um, hopeful, and helpful and entertaining. And that would be one part of my legacy. And I think that the, the real legacy lives in the people uh, who have gotten better as um, speakers or caregivers from hearing what I've said or, or reading my books or just knowing me one-on-one. -on -one. I'm hoping that something I've said or done or written will help people know that they can be better whether it's as speakers or presenters or caregivers or just human beings, that would be a great, great legacy. I love that. And you're already obviously touching so many hearts, already touched so many hearts and minds. And as a result, people are better. And I can attest to that in our inner circle uh, and how much people, how much myself had seen a lot of amazing change. But I just wanted to say thank you again for everything you're doing. Thank oh. you for sharing beautiful wisdom here. Well, this was and wonderful. Thank you for I love leading it. and leaving phenomenal legacy. Thank you. It was great being with you. Thank you for listening to Legacy Leader Show. If you enjoyed the content and had a positive experience, then please leave us a positive rating. In addition, leave us positive review whenever you are listening on whatever platform there might be. Make sure your friends and family also know about the benefit and value that we provide and what we have to offer. Cheers.